Hey, this is Jacob Feldman with a quick note before we get to Don and the rest of this podcast. There is some explicit language this week. Just wanted you to be advised. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. I'm Don Van Natta, and I am really thrilled today to have two of my closest friends with us, Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham. They're not just my ESPN colleagues, but uh, my friendship with them are uh, two of the best things in my life. Wright Thompson has been writing about sports since he was at the University of Missouri. He interned at the Times-Picayune in New Orleans and worked as the LSU beat writer. He wrote takeouts for the Kansas City Star. And in 2006, he joined ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine as a senior writer. He was the guest editor of the Best American Sports Writing Anthology in 2015. Wright lives in Oxford, Mississippi with his wife, Sonia. He's also consumed a lot more Pappy Van Winkle than me. Since graduating from the University of Missouri in 2000, Seth Wickersham has written for ESPN the magazine and ESPN.com. That's 17 years. Seth has only worked for one place, has had only one job, just like Roger Goodell. <laughs> Seth has written about a wide range of subjects from racehorse I'm euthanasia. Out. Goodbye, guys. <laughs> from, from racehorse euthanasia to NCAA compliance officers. In recent years, he's stretched his muscles and taken on investigative reporting. Now, I may be a little biased about this, but I do know a thing or two about investigative reporting, and uh, I believe Seth has become one of the country's top investigative reporters, not just about sports, but about any kind of subject. Seth and I have co-written numerous stories for ESPN about the power dynamics of the NFL, and Seth and I are now writing a book about the modern-day NFL with the working title Powerball to be published by Crown in 2020. And it's not as far away as it sounds, Seth, so got to get busy. Seth is from Alaska and is widely considered by many people, not just Wright and me, to be the nicest person in the world. So those are the introductions. Welcome, guys, to the podcast. Well, that's uh, first of all, that's absurd. He's not even <laughs> in the top 100 of nicest people in the world. <laughs> no, come on. Seth is the best person I know. He's, he, he cares oh, about Jesus. me more than my wife does, okay? Seriously. Well, he's just is trying to make sure that he doesn't have to always carry your ass in those stories. <laughs> true. So when I told Isabel, my oldest daughter, who's now 18, that I was going to have Wright and Seth on this podcast at the same time, she said, Dad, what are you doing? You're just going to be the third wheel. So <laughs> let's see if that's true. Uh, you guys have known each other nearly 20 years. Um, how did you guys first meet and what were your first impressions of each other? The first time I remember was uh, uh, right by the Missourian sports desk. We were covering football together along with Matt Jacob and uh, Seth came back and he'd been at the Washington Post that summer. I had, after failing to get an internship, had been traveling around the country going to widespread panic concerts and I immediately knew that I, being a deeply competitive person, I was like, all right, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this really quickly or I'm going to get totally embarrassed. Uh, so my first impression was just like, deeply colored by like this guy has just been working at the Washington Post and I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and Seth? Uh, I remember right from this stupid communications law class that we had. Well, it seemed stupid at the time, but actually yeah, that we now. pay attention has actually ended up benefiting us quite a bit. Yeah. But Wright had really long hair, like down to his belt. 
And um, to his belt? No, it was pretty long. It was pretty long. It was pretty long. And uh, you know, and then when we worked together, you know, he had this. I mean, this sounds. I wish I could come up with something snarky to say. I'm sure it'll come to me later. But I mean, Wright had an amazing passion for this, and he still does. It hasn't changed or waned, you know, one bit. And I think that when I first um, started working with him, I was just sort of surprised because I'd been at, in school for a while, and you know, you just don't see. Um, you know, I worked with some people on the football beat the year before, and met a lot of people in internships and whatnot. And, you know, you just don't see that type of passion from people right away. And as it turns out, it was, it was even rarer than I knew. And I learned something I didn't know about you guys. So Seth, you got the Washington Post internship, which is a invaluable experience to get in college. And right, you did not, you applied for the same internship and didn't get it. So Seth beat you out. Well, well, I mean, I, he was so far ahead of me that I don't even know if I was like, I'm talking about, I got rejected by like the Athens Banner Herald. <laughs> I mean, like, no, like we're not, I mean, the Washington Post, no. Like, I mean, I wasn't even, you know, I'm talking like the the state in Columbia, South Carolina was like, hell no. How competitive were you guys with each other in college? At the University of Missouri, I should say. Um, I don't think we were competitive with each other that much. I think we were I just competitive. Either. Yeah. But I think that it wasn't, you know, because we weren't working on the same stories. And so it wasn't like we were doing the same thing. But I do remember once when we, were, when we worked together, I think, Don, actually, you two were the only people I've ever had a co-byline with. And uh, I think that my, my, it was much more successful with Don than Wright. But when Wright and I were covering... <laughs> this, is, this is not a coincidence, by the way. Yeah, exactly. When Wright and I were covering football together... Um, the offensive coordinator was was pushed out of Missouri. And so we, you know, the news was breaking one night and we were at the newspaper and we had to write it. And I think we did rock, paper, scissors to see who would call the coach who had been let go and who would call the athletic director. And I lost. And I had to call the athletic director. And we were in a little office and everyone's just staring at me as I'm making this call. And I say, I, you know, I sounded very proper. I was like, you know, this is Seth Wickersham from the Columbia Missourian, you know, I think it was, his name was Jerry Burnt, I think, uh, you know, he said, you know, I said that he had been released and, you know, I, I was sort of professionally and probably too stiffly trying to get details out of the athletic director. And I got almost none and, you know, Wright had to call the coach. And this was like a really interesting, um, it was, it was honestly, it was a journalism lesson that I learned, but Wright had to call the coach and he, he, he got the coach's answering machine and we were all watching him as he did it. And he said something to the effect of, look, I know that I am the last person on earth that you want to talk to right now, that it's been a bad day, but if there's any way you might be able to please give me a call, I'd really appreciate it. And the coach called back within minutes. And I thought that was a really interesting, you know, lesson that I learned from right really at a young age, you know, to always sort of approach these things as a human first. And, you know, Don, we've told the stories about working together on certain stories where, you know, you bring that element to your reporting also. And so anyway, it was just a cool, cool day, cool lesson. And like, I mean, I think it was a really magical time and not just with us. I mean, they're like, we've talked about this a lot, but I mean, there was a really great sports staff and there was a great energy on the sports staff. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I don't want to speak for Seth, but I've certainly been sort of trying to recreate that feeling everywhere I've ever worked and have always been a little let down that the 
business of it never allows that feeling to totally be replicated or when it does get replicated for a brief moment of time, people who don't understand sort of esprit de corps accidentally kill it. And that's been it everywhere I've ever been. But like, I, I think that like it was, everybody was wanted to do this. Everybody wanted to be great. I mean, I remember, you know, going to Harpo's and having a huge knockdown drag out argument about a Tom, you know, Michael Stipe profile. Like, I mean, like we lived it and talked it and wanted to be really great at it. And I mean, in some ways, you know, that was the trampoline that made all of this possible was just the sort of incubator of that. Like, I, so I think it was much more collaborative. I mean, there was a sense of great job. Now I'm going to try to do one better, but I, I don't, it never felt competitive to me. It's interesting. It's interesting. Who were your writing heroes when you guys were in college? And, and did you try to write like them? You want to take it first, right? Well, uh, I mean, Gary Smith, uh, you know, Dan Jenkins, uh, and yes, but in a really bad way. I mean, like, I don't think I understood what, I didn't even understand what they were doing, much less why they were doing it or God forbid how to do it. Like, I mean, you know, I go back and read the stories now, you know, like in college I read the Bobby Knight, the Frank DeFord Bobby Knight story and I thought it was good. But it wasn't until now that I read it and I realized that it's per almost perfect. Like, the, it, it was so good, I didn't even understand what was going on. How about you, Seth? Um, you know, it was an evolution. And I, you know, one of the things with Wright is that Wright's never tried to write like anybody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and um, that's, it's one of the things that I think makes him really unique is that he always kind of knew his voice and the things that interested him. And, you know, that's, it's very rare, I think. And um, like when we were at, um, we covered the Super Bowl my senior year, what should have been right senior year, I think. <laughs> but uh, I was on a long plan. <laughs> yeah, but we covered the Super Bowl because the St. Louis Rams made it. And, you know, um, Wright was the one who sort of had the ingenuity to think of um, getting credentials, you know, from this kind of college, you know, paper. And so we went and you know, it was a terrific week because I was trying to find a job and I introduced myself to John Papanek, who was the editor-in-chief of the magazine at the time, who ended up hiring me and hiring Wright yep. uh, when when John later ran ESPN.com. Um, but, you know, we got there and we're, we're working on these stories. And I mean, Wright went to a homeless shelter in downtown Atlanta to, you know, just try to write about the contrast between the glitz of the Super Bowl and... Um, you know, this reality that was going on on the frigid streets of Atlanta. And, you know, he did the same thing uh, at the World Series. You know, and I don't know whether you're just kind of running out of ideas or whatever, but it was like... This year's this year's World Series, he did yes. in Houston. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're always looking at like the foul... You know, we're always looking for change in stories. And sometimes they're... You need to look for essence rather than change. And like, you know, that's Wright's essence. He looks for things like that. Like, it's so funny. Seth sent me an email day for that story, Ray, which was like... God damn, like you're still doing the same thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> you stick with what works. Oh, uh, I didn't even realize it. That's what's funny. Like I'd forgotten. I mean, it never occurred to me until he sent me that email. And I'm like, oh, that is pretty cool. Yeah. I, I, going back to your question, though, I did have writing heroes. You know, I really liked Rick Riley, Rick Tellender, Jim Murray. Um, I remember I bought a book of a collection of Jim Murray's books, oh, yeah, and, yeah. Or, you know, his, his articles. Mm -hmm. And I, I really was moved by that. And I was moved by Riley's 
profile of Jim Murray. It was one of Rick's first stories when he got to Sports Illustrated. And then, you know, I was, I, 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 I was, I was like right in the sense that I was influenced by Gary Smith. I once wrote a story about a football player whose dad was alcoholic, and I just <laughs> wanted to, I want to have a good time with this one. So I wrote the story second person from the point of view of the alcohol. Um, the first sentence is, "You were so used to winning, you thought you'd never lose." Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I think never lose again. Never that's lose awesome. again. That's awesome. But uh, no, it, no, it it wasn't. Awesome. Our sports editor got it, and he was this great guy. You know, he's a professional. He's like, you know, the guy. He's like in his forties, and he, you know, he was just such a. He was a real blessing. Yeah. That we couldn't have intended for, you know, couldn't have planned for because he he was just so he was just such a literary guy, and he understood how to explain a Gary Smith story in a way that very few people could. But I guess I wasn't there when I, you know, I, I sent it in and he, um, I guess at the sports desk, he looked at it and he was like, Oh my God, he didn't. <laughs> and then he paused and he goes, he did. <laughs> and so, you, you know, I definitely tried to mimic Gary in that regard. Cause I mean, second person was his thing. And I tried to sort of do the Dan Jenkins, Rick Riley, you know, Jim Murray sort of, add your, your kind of one-liners and they were really bad one-liners, but absolutely, you know, I looked at it kind of like a laboratory. I was, I, the one thing I never wanted to do was not stand out. I thought that if I was coming from Alaska and I was going to the university of Missouri for crying out loud, if I w <laughs> just went through the motions there, it would be a colossal fail. So, yeah. Well, let me ask you about voice, both you guys. I mean, Seth, you sort of answered the question on Wright's behalf, saying he always had a voice. But Wright, let me ask you, was there a moment when you thought, okay, I can do this in the sense that I, I know what my voice is. I've got confidence that I can actually make a living at this. Was there just some moment or some story or some particular uh, time when you finally got that confidence? Or maybe you still don't have it. You know, it's, it's, it, man, it's real interesting because there, there are a couple of them because you write something – I think you always write a story that is the absolute best you can do, and that propels you to try to be better. I mean, so there are a couple of things. Like after I after I wrote them, I was like, "Well, that's as good as I could possibly do." Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've always felt like I could do it. I mean, my big struggle was convincing someone else. Right. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I always felt like I don't know. I don't know how this sounds arrogant. I think like, I always felt like I know how to do this. And, no, it, uh, it, does, it doesn't sound arrogant because confidence, I mean, you've got to write with confidence. I mean, you know, we, we talk about this all the time. You've you got to report with total, uh, I, I report with just almost fear that there's a lot going on I don't know about. Oh, yeah, and I'm constantly sure. worried. But by the time I sit down, even if I still have that fear as a reporter, as a writer, you've got to be confident, right? You've got to be the god of your story. Or go as home. our friend Scott Price says. Yeah, No, you do. Home. Yeah. Um. Seth, how about you? What was there? Was there? A, but before we do that, right? Was what were the story? What were the stories where you felt okay? I'm never going to be as good as this again. Uh, I wrote a profile of Eli Manning at the New Orleans Times Picayune. I liked. I, I wrote a story at the Kansas City Star about uh, uh, this guy named Jack Trice. Yeah, really, football. really quick. I got to I got to cut him off for a second because the Eli Manning story was terrific, and it was also like a real source of comedy with our friends because. Wright came to New York and he went, we went to Elaine. So every time Wright would come to New York, we would go to Elaine's and um, oh, we would great. talk to Elaine. I was going to say, Elaine knew who you guys were? Well, she pretended to know. Which but, is good enough. Yes. Yeah, she did enough. She did that with me too, by the way. And I, I had no clue who I was. that Wright sent her that Eli Manning story, if I am not mistaken. 
I could neither confirm nor deny that something was put in the United States postal system. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But it, that was just that, that story was just you know that that felt like one that Wright had been waiting his entire life for. You know, it had the pageantry of Mississippi. It had the pageantry of the Mannings. The headline was North Towards Home, which was about Eli going to Ole Miss from New Orleans, which of course is like the title of the great Willie Morris book that Wright. You know, I'd never heard of Willie Morris coming from Alaska. I mean, Wright bought me. Um, that's my favorite book. The, yeah, the courting of Marcus Dupree and you know others that are just amazing. But anyway, you know that felt like you know you put if, if you were if you had died the next day, you could have said like, look, everything I had was in this Eli Manning and, story. And, and by the way, you talk about something that I you know I will I will deny till the day I die, but is actually true. I pushed hard for the North Toward Home headline because I already was like, this is a really good story, so it's got to be a good headline because I'm going to have that framed on my wall for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, by the way, it is. Uh, <laughs> I, lo- I love that. And so, but you know what, right? What I love about that is, so this, this is very early in your career, and oh, you're yeah. thinking, okay, it's not going to get better than this. I like, I, like I hit I hit the home run here. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it again. Well, the thing about it was is that it's the first time I ever successfully wrote about place, which is the thing that has interested me abstractly separate from stories since I was a very, very young boy. And so it's the first time that I ever felt like, okay, I'm now using the most important club in my bag to me personally. And, and, so, and why, why as a young boy did place – entice you so much what was it I about grew up in a weird place i mean seth did too uh you know and but in very different ways but like i was always very conscious of the fact that i was from a strange place with with a strange culture and you know dealing with you know even as a very young boy the fact that so much like the mississippi delta was both wonderful and just tragically cursed and you know had a real sort of the darkness of history laced through it. I don't know. I've just always really been interested in place. And I mean, like, you know, I've always liked a long road trip. I've always liked, you know, uh, to go places and try to find the soul of the thing. And, you know, my wife makes fun of me because she's like, you know, even as a 19-year-old, you wanted to go to, like, you know, the old Hemingway bars, not some club. She was like, you were born an old man. You know what I mean? Like you never liked <laughs> that stuff, but it's like, I've always just, it's, that's the thing I like most in the world. Seth, what about you on, on voice, on finding voice, finding, you, you know, okay, this is maybe I've, I've hit the mountaintop here. Um, and I know I can do this, um, certainly for the next story at the very least, but maybe even beyond that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a process. Like, you know, it was harder for me to find my voice. Um, you know, I think that as a writer, I just sort of, um, I, I was confident, but I think that there's just a point of view that is difficult sometimes to, you know, you need perspective. And Wright has always been kind of born with perspective in a weird way. I mean, that you know, the line about the old man, it's true. And I mean, even in college, we went to the old man bars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and so I think that, um, I mean, Wright wrote that profile of Michael Jordan where he knew what it was like and what it meant to be 50 better than Michael Jordan did. And I think that was a really amazing feat that Wright pulled off in that story. And so, you know, the stories I look at that are like the hallmarks of my career. Um, uh, I could name them if you well, can. I mean, I liked the story I wrote on the, you know, on the, on the player in college, you know, who had the alcoholic father, just because I felt like 
I was trying to do something different and I'd achieved a certain level of reporting. I liked um, a story I did in the Washington Post where I spent a bunch of time with some football freshmen as they navigated their first few days of camp. Um, oh, that was a good story. Maryland, uh, right? Was that yeah, Maryland it, was, it was University of Maryland. Yeah, and, um, you know, and, and I think that even like my first... My first feature at the magazine was, was Antoine Randall. It was, and it was, you know, that one was, was a couple months in the making, but I think my second one was on Terrell Davis and I got like a week to do it. And it was right before nine 11 and just pulling off something like that felt like I had accomplished something. So, oh. you know, there's like even times and stories where I see a transition that I, you know, sometimes not every story is, you know, checks all the boxes that you want, but sometimes even there's just a transition in a story where I'm like a year ago, I wouldn't have written that transition that I'm really proud of. So, yeah. I think that finding your voice as a writer is something that, you know, it, it's a process. And I think that, like, it's something that I take a lot of pride in. And, you know, I think that it's a, it can even, finding the right voice for a story is the next evolution for it. You know, you need mm -hmm. the, the right tone, I think. And, and, you know, it's so interesting you said that because, like, I remember, I mean, Seth was the pathfinder in a lot of ways for this stuff. I mean, I laugh every time I hear my old boss in Kansas City, Mike Fannin, use the phrase arc because I'm like, Dude, that's just something you heard me say, and I only said it because I heard Seth say it. <laughs> I must have said it four or five times before I even knew what it was. It was like that scene from Goldfinger where James Bond is strapped down, and he's like, Operation Grand Slam. And the guy's like, that's just a word you overheard. You don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> so, like, like, Seth was writing magazine stories, like, big, high-profile magazine stories. I mean, on Deadline. And so, I mean, it was really... I mean, it was interesting because, like, I I mean, I went to school on those a lot because they were so much, they felt so much more polished than the shit I was ripping off every day. And I just remember saying, like, All right, I need to figure out how he's doing this because this is, you know, anyway, I, like, I, I, you know, you starting at that magazine so young right out of college was, I think, beneficial to all of us because we sort of got the runoff. Yeah. And how did you pull that off, Seth? Well, how did I pull it off? I, I mean, it's amazing. Right and I went to New York um, for spring break. That was and, fun. you know, we all went to the same places to try to look for work. And, you know, Wright didn't have the pressure of, and the burden of having to try to find a job. And I did. And I was very sort of cocky and completely terrified. And so we we went to the New York Times they had these one-year internships that I was trying to get. We went to, Sports we drove up to the Boston Globe. We went to Sports Illustrated. We went to ESPN Magazine, and I didn't think any of them went particularly well for me. <laughs> and um, we had some good fun, though. Like you that know, was a we great trip. Yeah, we there was one time we we decided we wanted to try to meet with writers, and Wright was the one who had to call David Halberstam, oh. and we looked up David Halberstam in the phone book. <laughs> he was in, in the hotel. phone book. He yeah, was in, in our hotel book. in New York. <laughs> and um, I think Wright was out of the hotel and I was there by myself. And I, I think I was taking a nap and the phone rang at the hotel and it woke me up. And you hear that like that deep, <laughs> commanding voice that's just unrecognizable on the other end. And uh, the person asked for Wright. And they said, you know, I said, he's not here. Can I take a message? And uh, he said, this is David Halberstam. Will you please tell Wright Thompson that I can't meet with him this week, but if he'd like to meet in the future, to please let me know in writing <laughs> a couple weeks before he comes back. I was like, yes, Mr. Halberstam. Yes, I will. <laughs> and and, and I, got, I got George Plimpton on the phone that same day. 
Yeah, and then there was that George Plimpton story. So we went to Elaine's once. With, oh, this uh, is great. Another friend of ours, Justin Heckard, and his friend Evan. And um, we were eating at Elaine's, and we noticed that Neil Leifer was there, the famous Sports Illustrated photographer. And so we had this idea that we were going to ask Neil Leifer to take a picture with of With a us, disposable camera. With a disposable camera without... Telling without without us giving out that we knew no, that it was him. No, it was going to all just be like. So we, the whole plan was we're going to sit there and drink till he leaves. We didn't realize at the time that he has a hollow leg, so we were just totally shit rocked by the time he actually stood up. We were there a long time, but uh, we were going to go outside. I was going to pose him, and then I was going to take a picture and time it so he was walking out, and then I could be like, oh, excuse me, would you take our picture? Yes. So it, <laughs> dude, we sit there and drink for a couple of hours, and then it fucking happens. And he gets up and he starts walking to the to the door. We get out outside. I'm about to take the I take the first picture and then I look in and Neil Leifer has stopped to talk to someone at the bar. And now we're all standing outside of Lane's like idiots. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I'm holding the thing. At which point a dude in a tuxedo runs across the street. There's a light little rain falling. And then he turns like he's coming to a lane's. And I look up and it's George Plimpton. And I just Say, excuse me, sir, would you take our picture? And I just handed George Plimpton the camera, and he took it. Amazing. Yeah. I love it. And so, wait, so did you ever connect with Halberstam? No. No. Never connected with because you, you had to do the letter and two weeks, and it was too much to sort of coordinate all of it to get Halberstam. What, and, and Plimpton was the picture taker. Yeah, he was the picture taker. Amazing. That's so cool. And, the, I mean, the confidence that you guys had. Arrogance. Our arrogance, okay, it's your word. I'll, 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 I'll sign real. on to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, when I was a kid, I wanted to write for two two publications, Sports Illustrated or the New York Times. I never felt that I was going to get to either one of those places. And so, you know, I was lucky enough to get to the New York Times after eight years at the Miami Herald. And ESPN, the magazine, is arguably the Sports Illustrated of our era. So I'm fortunate. But I didn't think right out of college, like, I'm going to go to New York meet with people at the Times, go to the Globe and SI, and they're going to want to hire me. I just It just didn't occur to me. The, uh... Yeah, I mean, SI was hiring, and ESPN Magazine had just started, but, the, you know, when I was in college, I read The Franchise by Michael McCambridge, and it was, it's you know, it's, a, it's this great history of Sports Illustrated, and that's how I learned about Dan Jenkins. I'd never heard of Dan Jenkins before, yeah. and I, I knew who Frank DeFord was, but I almost knew him more as the NPR commentator than as this, you know, titanic type of writer right who yeah. you know wrote all these amazing stories in the 70s and 80s and so when i read that it not only served as this great history of sports illustrated and helped me understand writing and the people i needed to study and that type of thing but it was also like a, a subtle job guide yeah <laughs> because it, 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 yeah, yeah it it, it illustrated how people got hired at sports illustrated and there was different routes and you know probably being arrogant and completely insecure that I would never get there otherwise, you know, that was the impetus to try to apply for those gigs. And and I love that like, you know, Seth started as a, you know, a researcher and a writer reporter and and I went to a couple of different newspapers and we both were promoted to senior writer at the magazine on the same day. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well the same issue. The first masthead where we were where he was a senior writer was the first one where I was a senior writer. When was that? 2007, something like that? Yeah, I, uh, 10, 10, 11 years ago? Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. We should frame that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Surprised Heckard hadn't framed it and sent it to us. Yeah, exactly. 
All right. So I want to ask both you guys what your favorite all-time story is by the other person. So, right, we're going to go. We're going to start with you. What's your favorite all-time story that Seth has written? And you only get to pick one. Why Tittle? Absolutely. I love that story. Is perfect. I mean, that's about it. You know, that's as good as a story could be. I love that story. Now, that's the story you picked that that led the best yeah. American sports writing uh, edition from 2015 that you edited. All right, and that's mine as well. Uh, Awakening the Giant is the title, and I have the opening paragraph here, which is actually one of my favorite opening paragraphs of any story it's ever. Real which, good. It's real good, which <laughs> I'm going to read. I okay. want to read it. I want our listeners to hear this. All right, so just just bear with me here for about a minute while I read this incredible lead read by fast. Seth Wickersham. I will. <laughs> you remember the picture? Why a Tittle is on his knees in the end zone after throwing an interception that was returned for a touchdown. Swollen hands on his thigh pads, eyes fixed on the grass. He is helmetless and bleeding from the head. One dark stream snaking down his face, another curling near his ear. His shoulder pads make him seem hunched over, resigned, broken down. The black and white photo was taken in 1964, the final year of Tittle's career. It hangs in a silver frame at his home in Atherton, California, not with the prominence befitting one of the most iconic pictures in sports history, but lost among many mementos from a Hall of Fame career. The picture is now 50 years old, and Tittle is now 87. He does not remember much anymore, but that photo is seared in his mind. The blood picture, he calls it. He hates it. I mean, that's just that's just poetry. It's, it's real perfect. Good. It's real good. It's real good. So, Seth, well, how did thank you... Thank God for up? Eric Neal, who realized, <laughs> you know, a thousand words in that that paragraph should begin the story. <laughs> oh, is it was it really Eric's idea? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yep. Wow. Brilliant. Well, see, editors are there. Sometimes they're worth something. That's pretty amazing. He I didn't fished know it out. Was. He was like, um, I think you might want to begin with this one. That's great. It's it's fantastic. And, and Seth, just tell tell our listeners how you came up with the idea or whose idea was the YA Tittle story and just about that experience. I know you got very close to him. He passed away just a few months ago and I know you went out. Yeah, we had an old an editor at the magazine named Bruce Kelly who was friends with the Tittle family, kind of not close friends, but close enough that he knew that YA had dementia. And so he thought, hey, why don't you just go out there? I was working on a Tony Gonzalez story at the time and I was out in San Francisco for it. And he, um, they, you know, he was like, why don't you just go meet with the family and see if you think there's a story there? And um, so I did. I read his, his daughter had written a memoir about what it was like growing up um, as a poet you know, under, uh, as a daughter to this famous quarterback. And so I, um, I, uh, I had read the book before we met and then I met with her at her house for a couple hours. Then we went over to go see YA and, you know, it was just a great day, but I, um, I, uh, I, I didn't know what the story would be. And obviously the story of the sort of the football player with dementia has been done a gazillion times. And then when I found out about the trip that he takes every year back to Kaido Lake, that's when I knew it was a story. So, mm -hmm. and you know, Wright was a great help for that because, you know, that story was kind of in his wheelhouse. And so, um, you know, it was just a fortunate story because it was just, you know, it just happened in front of me. It was like that Springsteen line, you know, the poets don't write nothing at all. They just stand back and let it all be. It just happened. That was a, a really easy story in that regard. Um, so, you know, and going to like your question about Wright, I mean, you know, it's been a pleasure to like watch his career evolve and watch him evolve and, you know, 
he's taken on a lot of difficult stories over the years. I mean, I think that like a lot of his stories strike me as, um, you know, I think with a lot of, with my career, I, I sort of focused on the NFL and I was like, how can I wring more out of this? <laughs> you know, like what new can I say about this? And, you know, Wright sort of took on the world in that regard and not only took on the world, but took on um, difficult places to go, um, dangerous places to go, Iraq, yeah. Kenya, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you, you've, you've been to some dangerous places and written some dangerous stories. And I mean, I think that there's so many of them that stand out. I mean, one of them that I'll always come back to, and you know, I don't know if this is my favorite story, but I appreciate this story in a lot of ways, is the Johnny Manziel story that you wrote in 2013, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, because 2013. Yep. we were talking all the time. Well, we talk all the time, but we were talking all the time during that story and you just didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know if you were going to get Johnny. You were just like in your hotel room panicking. Yeah. And, you know, I, we talk about confidence and, you know, the ability to write. I mean, there is not a moment that in the course of reporting any sort of story, you don't feel that doubt. It may not be a crippling doubt, but you feel it. And, you know, you wrote this amazing Johnny Manziel story purely on observation with Johnny because you didn't actually ask him a single question. <laughs> well, I mean, I tried, but it was not, there wasn't, you know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. it was one of those things where you're like, well, I got a bag of shit now and I'm going to have to dump it out on the bed and see what there is. Cause like, well, that whole thing was just, I mean, I ultimately was like, I'm just not leaving college station, Texas until there's a story that's done. I mean, if I have to just move here, I'm not leaving. Yeah, and and how long were you there? I don't even know. It wasn't. It turned out to not actually. I probably a week or so. I don't know because I, I got it. But like, there was this moment where I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm going to write. Uh, and also, it was just so the the piece was so prescient. I mean, the yeah. thing was the, the piece was just well, that was real that, obvious. By the way, I mean, I don't want to send like like it was it was very obvious to me after one day around him that this was going to end up in a train wreck. It it was not only like one of the best stories you've ever written about fame. And about a pure look at the toll that it takes on somebody. But it was also like, you know, obviously the NCAA and the rules have come under like so much scrutiny. And this was the best story about that because it didn't focus on the rule book and instead it showed like the human cost of what it's like to live in this incubator. That was what was interesting to me about it was this is a guy who has all of the disadvantages of fame. But because of these idiotic rules about amateurism, isn't allowed to A, have the benefits, or B, have the resources or the ability to construct a bubble around himself to protect himself from it. Like the only way to survive celebrity is to build yourself a bubble out of money. And the, like they wouldn't let Johnny take golf carts to and from class. So he had to stop going to class because he would get mobbed. So, like when I went there, the thing that was interesting to me is these idiotic rules are keeping someone from creating the necessary tools to survive fame. Yeah. I mean, the piece works on so many levels. It, it is, it's fantastic. And that was, that was on my short list. Um, but my favorite piece by Wright is, is the Michael Jordan piece. Michael Jordan has left the building. Um, That's a Kevin Jackson headline. K- KJ works it? at ESPN is the best headline writer I've ever met. And he does it over and over and over again. And I, that was running in the magazine and I couldn't come up with a good headline and the mag editors kept whiffing and I sent the piece to KJ and I was like, we need a headline. And he wrote me back like not much later and was like, the headline is Michael Jordan has not left the building. It's fantastic. Uh, let me read the lead. 
Charlotte, North Carolina is the dateline. Five weeks before his 50th birthday, Michael Jordan sits behind his desk, overlooking a parking garage in downtown Charlotte. The cell phone in front of him buzzes with potential trades and league proposals about placing ads on jerseys. A rival wants his best players and wants to give him nothing in return. Jordan bristles. He holds a Cuban cigar in his hand. Smoking is allowed. Well, shit, being as I own the building, he says laughing. Great top. You're you're all in uh, with that lead. And it's got the best kicker of all time. Seth, I think you might agree with me on this, of, you know, Michael Jordan uh, in his darkened house. I just want to read this last paragraph. It might be my favorite kicker of any story I've ever read. The house is dark. It's almost 1 a.m. And he opens the iPad app that controls the loft's audio visual system. Every night he does the same thing and he does it now. Turn the bedroom television to the Western channel. The cowboy movies will break the darkness, break the silence, allow him to rest. It's just like the old days, him and pops. Jordan climbs into bed. The film on the screen is unforgiven. He knows every scene and sometime before the shootout in the saloon, he falls asleep. It's great. I mean, kickers are, talk about the importance of kickers, guys. How important are kickers to stories? Well, they're the single most important thing. And I mean, like, I, I knew that story was going to work when uh, he told me he went to sleep watching Westerns. And then he told me later he and George were talking about their favorite movies. And I asked when he felt closest to his father. And he said probably watching a Western. And so I got to introduce the Westerns in a funny way in, in the middle of the story, yep. knowing that I was setting up the end. Uh, and, yeah, and I remember, like when you're when when you were reporting that story, you know, you did a lot of preparation for that story. I mean, yeah. you you know you you were he- you came in heavy. You know, Don and I talk about that all the time. When you come to a subject, come heavy, and yeah. you know you you came in heavy. And I remember you called me a couple hours after you were supposed to sit down with him in in the office, like you did, and you brought him cigars, right? Yeah, I brought him. Yeah, uh, I brought him a Cuban cigar. And um, I remember you called me, and you were like, "This is fucking going great. This is great. I'm going to his apartment. I'm following him. This is great. I gotta go." <laughs> well, I just knew. I was just like, the, by the way, I had an. I went through a Cuban cigar phase uh, that ended when the uh, Custom and Border Patrol people busted me because I was buying cigars from the turns out not very stealthily named MyCubanCigars.com. <laughs> uh, you know, Chris Jones, this is the first time I'd heard this, you know, but Chris Jones had said, you know, I never, um, I always know the ending for, I, I write the ending first. And so he knows where he's going. And I, um, I think that was one of the more valuable pieces of um, writing advice that I've, yeah. that I've ever heard. And I didn't even kind of realize it at the time. At the time, I kind of thought it was like, well, here's this great writer and this is, that's just his process. But I usually find that the stories that I struggle with as I'm writing um, are the ones where I didn't do that, or at least I don't know where I'm ending because I don't, I don't outline. I don't like to do it, yes. but um, you know, I think that it is important to know, you know, when you, when you, you get off the, the, you know, when you, when you take that leap, how you're going to land, it's just important. And like, you know, that was a really important piece of writing advice that I learned. I agree with that. And you know, right? You were calling me during the the Jordan thing too. I got I got a similar phone call. Seth, oh. you just reminded me uh, several times while you were just hanging out with Jordan, just bringing me up to date, 
telling me the highlights of things he said. You were so excited. And that's one of the cool things about my friendship with you guys. I mean, I've learned through you so much and we, we help each other. We sort of root each other on. I mean, that's why I asked that competition question early on because there really isn't much between us. And, and it's, it's a rare thing. I mean, being at the New York times for 16 years, everybody's got a knife out and it's just not that way at ESPN. It's just a different collaborative effort. And, and, you know, I mean, Seth and I, we, we were partners and we've done a bunch of stories together. So we're constantly lifting each other up, prodding each other to get another fact or make that call or whatever. But with Wright, I mean, you guys are best friends, but I've been, you know, with Pat Riley earlier this year, right, when you did that great Riley profile and you were coming to Miami, we were hanging out. I was hearing in real time what you were getting. And I wanted to ask about that as a setup to ask, do you find that in writing and in, in talking with people and just telling people what what is happening, that that helps you build your narratives? I mean, is it a good tool to do that? Yes. I mean, one of the most valuable things of the Jordan story is immediately after leaving Charlotte, I flew to Washington, D.C. to talk to people in his office. And that night went out with Rick Mace and a bunch of guys from the Washington Post, and they were asking me about it. And so I had to, in a bar tell them the Michael Jordan story and like it made it like that was in hindsight that was unbelievably helpful Seth how about you the the telling of stories how important is that when you're trying to build narratives telling right telling me yeah right is an invaluable resource with that and he always has been and um you know I I I don't know if I'm the same sort of resource but I try I mean I remember when you did the Elvis Gerback story and that was very helpful well and that was you did that at the Kansas City Star, and I remember, um, you know, Wright got assigned this this Elvis Gerback story, and you know, Elvis had retired, and I think he moved to Cleveland, right? Yeah, Chagrin Falls. Yeah, and um, you know, Wright was like getting sent off to go write about Elvis Gerback, and I was like, well, who cares? You know, <laughs> I was being kind of a kind of a dick, and I was like, who cares about Elvis Gerback? You know, and I I don't know whether that my reaction to it mattered or not, but. You know, that ended up sort of right lived the tension of that. Yeah. You know, is, should we care about Elvis Kerbeck? You know, is somebody allowed to like walk away from Arrowhead Stadium and live a normal life in a completely different place? And, um, you know, the ending of that story was kind of, you know, controversial in, in our little world. And, you know, it was right outside of um, Elvis's house, wondering whether he should go in and go knock the door. And I didn't. He didn't. Yeah. And a hack-ass editor fucked up my kicker because the original line was uh, uh, Elvis Gerbach has been found and now it's time to let him go. And he added, he, when he got through with it, it read, Elvis Gerbach has been found, although not completely dissected, and now it's time to let him go. Oh, Still pisses me off. It was 15 years ago. I should really let that go. Now, like, like, I mean, like, Seth is very, very good about like he does that a lot, not just with Elvis Gerbach, but like it's the process of clarifying it. It's like, you know, it's the questions that are like, okay, that, you know what I mean? Like I, I find that invaluable. Like I love talking out stories because, you know, it's very easy, I think, to miss the forest for the trees. Like you get so locked into, you know, I'm here, I'm somewhere, I'm reporting a story right now and I need sort of a couple more pieces of information and I'm so hyper-focused on that that I'm not thinking about the larger thing. So talking about stories is helpful. Yeah, and have you guys ever had an occasion where 
you're telling a story and the way you start it, the telling of the story, that's where you start the story. Has it ever been just that organic? Uh, I don't think so. I think that, you know, right often helps me with the framing. You know, I think I usually know, you know, sometimes right will read a draft and he'll say, no, 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 your beginning is 1500 words in. Right, right. You know, but I think that seeing the forest from the trees is something difficult because you want to, you know, if you're standing on the top of a diving board staring at a pool, you want to report to the detail that you can like read the dates on the pennies at the bottom of the pool, but you've got to stand at the top of the diving board and tell everybody what the pool means. I know this is me talking a lot about a pool, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, and Wright helps do that. You know what I mean? And he does it quickly. And, you know, t Don, you do that. Tom, you know, he helps with that. I mean, Tom just he, helped me. I yeah. called him about this thing I'm doing now. And was just yeah. like, can I just say this out loud to you? And then you say the first thing that comes in your head. Yeah, Tom Tom magazines stories very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, really yeah, something. Sure. And and so that that really helps. And, you know, I think that going back to what you were saying, Don, I mean, about you know, all of us sort of being friends and helping each other, you know, you realize how much the stories you're proud of most are group efforts. And you also realize how bad you feel for some of your friends you see out there who like, you know, they have the spark of that thing and you can tell that an editor quite couldn't get it out of them. And also, I mean, you know, your success is not my failure. This isn't like some zero sum shit. Do you know what I mean? It really is, you know, the rising tide. I mean, that thing is real. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, you don't, I don't know how the right way to say this. You know, you want to hold your pizza the chain. Like, you know, I take great pride in being someone that the magazine counts on. And so when it, you know, I love reading great stories that we publish because it's like, okay, now the bar is raised. Let's go see. You know what I mean? Like, I, that, that's motivating and fun. Like, I like being part of a group of people that are all doing real high level stuff because it, it means you have to stay on the ball to not get left behind. It forces you to be your best self. Yeah, but you guys, I mean, I'm telling you that the the collaborative atmosphere at ESPN is unlike any that I've had in my career. Maybe at the Miami Herald, there were a few years of that very early on, but but at the times it was it was fleeting. There were moments of it, but not not often. It's just it was just a hyper competitive place. Um, I had an editor at the Miami Herald who said, you know, we like to have insecure overachievers, <laughs> um, and you know, it worked. And That's it's me. Worked, it worked. Yeah, it, right. It, it, and, it, and it works. It works at most in most newsrooms. Um, but there's just a different ethos at, at ESPN, um, and it's it's pretty remarkable. So, Seth, I want to ask you. You've pivoted not to video, but to investigative reporting uh, in the last few years, um, and I've been the beneficiary of that. And I wanted to just ask you why. What motivated that sort of change from just being a straight feature writer, and, I, and that's a great thing, to wanting to really stretch your wings and do investigative reporting and some of the hardest I think that's out there in, in trying to cover the national football league in that way. Um, well, I think I just, I didn't want to, my greatest fear is having plateaued and mm -hmm. you know, yeah. that yeah. it's deeply personal to me that like, you know, like I go back to earlier, even if like it's just a transition or a paragraph in a story that I see in evolution, it's just so important for me to feel that and to see that. And you know, when you were hired, 
the first time I met you, I think I might have asked if you know we should work together sometime. And it just didn't you did. happen yeah, for we were a couple in, years. Yeah, we were in we were in Chad Millman's office. I remember. Yeah, and I, you know, look, we hire you. I'd be a fool yeah. to not try to, you know, see what can be, you, you know, absorbed, you know, from working with you because it's like, you know, your resume spoke for itself. It was, and you know, we never hired someone who had that type of resume in a field completely different than sports. We just we hadn't and. You know, I think that, um, so it was a couple of years, but we ended up working on Spygate to Deflategate together. And, you know, that was a, a transformational story in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I think that once you, you see what, you know, you can do, you want to just keep doing it. And, you know, I just think that, um, the types of stories that have been interesting have, fed off of that experience that we had working together and the network of people that we've that we used for that story and brought in since then and I, I guess that's just kind of how it's happened and then once you're doing it you just want to do it as you know the very very best you can when you know like i remember i was in state college when right after don got hired and just watching him i was like oh shit like yeah like okay like you know what i mean like uh, okay like <laughs> You know, it's, it's meeting Wyatt Earp or something. You're like, holy shit. Okay, so that's where the bar is. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I mean, to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, I mean, sometimes I don't even know if there really is such a thing as investigative journalism. I mean, it's like people who want to report real shit and then people who don't. And, like, I don't see, maybe just because I'm intimately familiar with the body of work, but, like, I don't see the sort of deflate gate in the NFL trilogy stories. I mean, I think that they feel to me like a natural extension of a lot of the other NFL stories, Seth, that you've been doing for a long time. Like, I don't feel like they're like some dramatic new thing. I mean, I think that like they're groundbreaking and you've cracked the hardest thing in the world to crack, which is the inner circle of the NFL. So in that way, yes, absolutely. But I mean, they're just doing what I think a, a lot of those stories did, which is contextualize a soundbite world and make it make sense. Like, I think that, I don't know, maybe I'm totally wrong about that, but I, that's how it feels to me. No, no, I, I, I agree. I, some, I sometimes think we get hung up putting labels on things. I, I mean, this is, this, is an, this is enterprise reporting. This is any kind of deep dive feature story where you want to know the subject better than anybody else. When you, when you are the expert, you know, as Seth said earlier, you knew better than Michael Jordan what it was like to be 50, even though you were 39 when you wrote the story, or 38. Um, th that's what it is. And, and that's, that's, I think what Seth and I have tried to do with these stories. But, but Seth, I'm curious about just the reactions. I mean, we've had such, we've had large reactions to our stories. I mean, did, did, is that part of what appeals to you? Is that part of the appeal to continue to do that kind of work? I mean, you get a different response when you, you know, catch Bob McNair saying something he shouldn't be saying, um, behind closed doors in an NFL meeting than you do doing a straight profile. Yeah. Uh, of Gerbeck, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a different, there's just a different splashdown to that story. I don't know if it's the reaction as much as it's like, we're capturing something here. You know, this is how this happens. These are the hardest meetings in the, one of the, you know, some of the hardest meetings in the country to get in. And, you know, we are, you know, detailing them as they happen with, you know, no polish on them. And I think that that to me is, 
I get that kick because that's just, I know how hard it is to do that. And you know how hard it is to do that. And so that to me is the, is the most gratifying part is that like, look, you know, we're showing this, how this stuff happens and people don't, maybe they suspect that it's like this or maybe they don't, but they don't know. And we're helping them learn. And that to me is what makes it like so, so rewarding. It's like you're sticking your finger in a light socket. I mean, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, there's just <laughs> nobody's – it's unbelievable. I mean, I would love to know if they've had their office swept for bugs. I'd say that's a good question. I'd love to know that too. Well, one of the highest compliments that Seth and I got after uh, one of the recent NFL stories is Jerry Jones told somebody it was as if we had recorded the NFL meetings <laughs> and had a transcript. And that uh, I'll dine out on that one for a long time. I mean, that was pretty cool. Um, do you guys have a story that got away? Is there a piece that you did and it just didn't work? You reported and it didn't work? Or you wrote even and then it you just it failed? I mean, I'm curious about that. Both of you guys, right, you go first. A story that got away uh, that you regret. God, there are a lot of them. I mean, uh, I mean, most of the ones that got away are ones that I just couldn't land. You know that I felt like I might be able to at a like a critical time, and then just sort of access fell apart. Like I mean, ones recently is I was real plugged in, had been reporting a Tom Herman story when he was at Houston, mm-hmm. and it looked like I might get to be totally inside the bubble as he decided whether or not to take the Texas job, and then went to Austin and set up shop. And I really felt like I'm going to have this like view into this major life change that you never ever get and then i think the job was real stressful the first 48 hours for him he just sort of went radio silent and like so i was really bummed out about that because i was sort of i was in memphis with him i was on the bus as he drove to the airport after the like i was totally embedded and i felt really close to having something and then halfway through the reporting it fell apart and we just ended up throwing the notes away like you know uh, and that was a big bummer. Uh, I did a story about uh, Gerdwich Monomir, who uh, was, was a 22-year-old washed-out junior college basketball player who invented a new identity and pretended to be a 16-year-old guy and went back to high school to, to, to try again. And it turned out he had all sorts of mental issues, and he started calling me from jail and really wouldn't stop. And I got so far down the rabbit hole that I lost the story. Like, I... I, I, I you know, I didn't have a story and I didn't have a book. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, I, that's one that I just. What do, what do you mean down the rabbit hole? Like so? I, I just over-reported it. Just in a, in a real OCD, excessive, obsessive way when I should have just pulled the plug and written it. And I mean, I must have stayed, you know, I must have like reported this thing out in real time for 18 months. And like it just it, it, it ended up I just had too much, and I don't know. And was it a felt? Was it was it basically you couldn't figure out what the story no, was? I wrote it, it was, and I, I just yeah. would like it back now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see. there are some that just feel unfinished. You know? Yeah, like I just I wrote it because I was like either I have to write this now or I got to stay with this dude for another three years. <laughs> and like I just you know what I mean? I just want out. Uh, I don't know. I'd like that one back. How about you, Seth? Um. No, I'm perfect, Seth says. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, the, you, you know, last fall I worked on an NFL story that never ran. And, you know, I had like a lot of really good reporting, but I didn't have a story. And, um, 
you know, that was hard. I've never had that happen. You know, well, you, had I felt a, like, you had a you had a story. Yeah. You wrote a story. We can we can talk a little bit about it. You wrote a story, and it actually was a lot of great stuff in it. Yeah, it, you know, but, but editor editors just didn't see it. I mean, I, well, I, I, you know, I, I thought you had a lot of fantastic reporting there. Well, there's enough oh. people that didn't think that it was quite there, and you, right. you know, and so instead of rather, you know, instead of like going back into it and, um, trying to redo it or, or keep reporting a particular thread, I just forgot about it. I stopped. I really know, admired how you did that. You went right in and like I think the next story you did was a real big blockbuster. And yeah, we remember, did the Vegas story. Yeah, and the then, Vegas um, story. I just remember thinking. Wow, that's big time because like that really would have laid me low, you know. Like, like I don't know. I thought you I thought that was an impressive rebound. No, I, I look and I, I and Seth and I did the Vegas story together, and I saw it in real time. It was remarkable. Seth threw threw himself into that story, right? Like, and just never looked back. Didn't whine about it. Didn't didn't dwell on it. Yeah, you know, I hate it when a, he does that. I would have whined my ass off. <laughs> I whined, but uh, you know, and I think that. You the did, best part is his wife's the one who killed it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. I know that 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 wasn't awkward or anything. No, um, could you pass the ketchup? Fuck yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, but it ended uh, so much of the of the reporting from that and some of the themes ended up becoming part of the story that Don, you and I just wrote. And it, yep. you, you, yep. you know, in a weird way, it's like we needed the urgency, the immediacy of what it meant, and that you know this this Jerry Jones Goodell um, stare down out of nowhere brought that immediacy to it. I mean, to the point that some of the paragraphs were like almost moved verbatim, it felt like. Yeah. And, you know, and that made it really gratifying because, you know, maybe that story before I, it could have run, but it, you know, I don't know if it would have had the impact that our one had this time. And I, and I think that it ended up working out in the end. And so that was really cool. And, and one thing I thought was interesting is I think you just have such a, insight into how the NFL works that you almost, I think the reason that your, that story didn't work ultimately was the, that you had explained something that hadn't happened yet. Like, do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, like, yes absolutely. Like absolutely. You, the reason it wasn't a story is because you had to wait for them to learn, to realize the things about themselves that you'd realized a year earlier and then act on them. Seth Seth was figuring out issues that Bob McNair and Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft. I mean, they had an inkling about it, but didn't re- were not really confronting until this fall. But last fall, Seth was already onto them, and it's true. The piece was just it was a year ahead of its time for sure, and and it and it and it was it was there was material in it that fit perfectly into the Goodell versus or the Jones versus Goodell story that we just did. Um, all right, so right, I've been asked by many people to ask you why you got off Twitter a few years ago and what it's going to take to get you back on. So let's quickly get this dispatch with this because we're getting we're running out of time. Twitter's here. stupid and I will <laughs> never get back on. Right, and and tell our listeners why it's stupid and, and what you've been telling Seth and I about Twitter for uh, a well, year, year I mean, plus now. Well, one, I mean, as Seth says all the time, what is the value of being right on the internet? Like, even if you do win an argument, who cares? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, so first of all, it's ridiculous. And it every single person, me and you, Don, included, are our worst, are the distillation of our worst selves on Twitter. It's just the nature of the medium. And I don't understand why, like, I get to give why I have to give people access to my pocket. 
Like, I, you know, like I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. And I don't miss what do, it. What do you mean your pocket? You mean, you mean writing for free? Well, no, just like, I don't understand why anybody, anybody in the world gets, get, just gets to motherfuck me and I read it on my own phone. I see. Like, why would you, you do that? That's insane. Right. right. And you mean live, live inside your pocket with, yeah, with the, you like, mean the trolls and, yeah, the, and my the negativity. Phone. Why would I like, yeah. I've given anyway. And I, I don't, there's nothing I miss about it. And I will never, ever get back on it. Okay. I think we've, I think we've set that. And you've been telling Seth and me to get off for I've been trying a, a to get everyone time. I know off of Twitter. Yeah. It doesn't help you in any way. It doesn't move the needle on traffic. Facebook does. Facebook can swing a presidential election. Twitter doesn't do anything except get you in trouble. And it's gotten many people in trouble, and including some of our colleagues. Dude, but we, but let's, not, let's fired, not go there. If you got fired for right. Twitter... You would be, first of all, you would feel like the dumbest motherfucker who ever walked the face of the earth. And you would be right. You would have killed the golden goose for nothing. Yeah, for trying to for trying to get trying a to few favorites. For trying I, to can't, be I can't wait until people tweet that quote after they hear this. <laughs> oh, God, that didn't even occur to me. That's meta. Uh, Seth, what's your funniest story about right? Oh, Jesus oh, Christ. I don't know. Well. Tell me something funny about Wright, oh. uh, some funny moment. Here's a funny moment. And uh, there's been funnier ones, but this one was particularly funny. Oh, I can't even imagine oh. what this is going to be. He came to visit New York, and he wanted to go to Harry Cipriani's restaurant across the street from the Plaza this Hotel. Is, this is the one you pick? <laughs> well, okay. it's not embarrassing. It's just funny. It is funny. And uh, two of our other friends were in town, and so we go, and we show, you know, I... Right, were you in college or you, were you out? I was out. You were out. So, I mean, you were like 22, 23 years old. You know, I was 23, 24. And, I mean, we walked into this place. We have no business being in there at all. Uh-uh. None. And, you know, it's maybe like 1130 or so. And one of the things we didn't know about it is that you need to be wearing a blazer. Uh-huh. And so they take us, str- they usher us straight to a closet where uh-huh. they put blazers on us. Yeah. Then we go back to the, to the table. Like the Friars Club. And right before before we uh, we order, Wright says, you know, I just want us to get a drink just so we can enjoy this. And he orders Bellinis, which I'd never heard of, these cocktails. And so we get the menu, and we look at the menu, we're like, oh, Jesus Christ. Everything was so expensive. Like a club sandwich was $85. Yeah. <laughs> and so we end up getting three fruit bowls. Yeah. And, and one, one side salad. And one side salad and a bottle of wine. And Wright starts realizing that uh, Wright speaks Italian or some Italian. And he realizes that the waiter is like motherfucking us in Italian. And so he, he, he gets nervous and he orders like this really expensive bottle of wine. I know. I did that. That's true. So then we get out. We've been there for like 40 minutes and we're like, we got to get out of here. What was our bill? It was like our bill was over $300 yeah, in 40 paid, minutes. Which I paid for because I felt so bad. About. And then we then we leave and we're like, well, where should we go eat? <laughs> I don't. We went to Tony Burger. We went to Tony Burger, oh. but on the way to Tony Burger, we walked down Fifth Avenue and Wright, who's still pissed off about how much money we spent at Terry Cipriani's and how little value we got out of it, goes into like a watch store on Fifth Avenue and you almost bought like a fifteen hundred dollar watch just out of spite to like make yourself feel better. I did. That's Out of self spite. I do. I do. Uh, I do therapy shop sometimes. I will admit that. I'm the world's greatest internet shopper. Uh, I mean, you know what? That was actually very nice because you could have told a lot of ones. 
I do remember how on the morning after his bachelor party, Seth, we were we were at Bar Tabac and uh, in Brooklyn, and, oh. uh, and it was a real rough morning. And you know, there it's like the beginning of sort of hipster Brooklyn invasion, and so there are families everywhere with strollers and you know, and little kids and toddling down the street, and you know, there wasn't like lilting circus music playing, but it sort of felt like it was, you know, it was like this and Seth is walking and then just completely barfs in a trash can, like right in front of like four families in a stroller. And there's, you know, the bombs covering the eyes and the whole thing. It was great. <laughs> I love it. That's the same weekend. I stole someone's car service. <laughs> How did you do that? Oh, oh God. Oh, that was good too. Yeah. Usually you, you have, <laughs> well, so we went back to the hotel and after we, that night we went, we went out and, um, Oh, we had a, I got him a Bruce Springsteen impersonator for his bachelor party. So we yes. could go to a karaoke bar yeah. and he could sing Springsteen with this Springsteen impersonator. Yeah. And remember the guy was like a tennis instructor. So you thought about like writing a story about him. You're like, Hey, it's a sports story. I did. But, um, yeah, we went out, we just hit it hard that night and we went back to the hotel and, um, right. This is sort of a signature buys, move. Buy, right by his full metal jacket on on the um, the pay-per-view, and he turns up the volume to like 70, and he picks up the phone, and he orders a steak, a Caesar salad, and a pot of black coffee. And then, <laughs> you know, five minutes later, he's completely passed out. And, y y you know, I'm passed out too, and I can hear this like banging on the door with the room service when it finally got there. Oh, you also got a plate of hot wings. Yeah. A Caesar salad, a plate of hot wings, a steak and a, and black coffee. And, um, they're just sitting there banging and banging and banging and like, nobody can get up and nobody cares. And so then you woke up to catch your flight and you walked downstairs and what? Well, I woke up and I, I, I don't want, well, I think I woke up 50 minutes before the flight took off. And so I rushed downstairs and walked. This is not my finest moment. I realize now. Uh, I walk downstairs and there's a guy holding a sign that says like Jones or something, you know? And I'm like, I'm Jones. <laughs> and I just got the car and he took me to LaGuardia. <laughs> and you made the flight. Yes. So Wright and I uh, were in LA a couple of years ago um, after we had two pretty good stories in the same issue, actually. And we were feeling pretty good about ourselves. We were there for a, a journalism conference. And I told Wright about this term that I heard from a reporter at the New York Times named Lynette Holloway. And the term is when after you do a great story, what she would say is she'd come up to me. And if you're kind of strutting around the newsroom a little bit, she'd go, Vanetta, you're Cadillacing. Just like that. It's you're my, Cadillacing. It's my favorite they, thing in the world. And, and so I, I told Wright about that. And, and he's He's adopted it. He loves it. And we were definitely Cadillacing in L.A. for a couple of days um, and had a really, really good time. So I want to talk just a little bit about Cadillacing and praise. Whose praise for each of you guys is the most important to you? You go first, Seth. Um, I mean, they're all on this on this podcast. Um, you know, I because I, 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 I mean, and, you know, other friends, Tom, Juno, obviously, Kevin Van Valkenburg. I mean, our friends from college, Justin Heckert, Tony Rehagen. Um, but you know, it just, it matters from people who, who know what it's like and who, even if they don't like the entire story, can see a little piece of magic in it or a piece of reporting that was really difficult. And that to me is just, you know, that, that is important. And, um, you know, I really, um, I, I cherish that and I value it a lot. How about you, Ray? 
I mean, not to be a broken record, but I mean that. And also, you know, I like praise not on the story. I like it when somebody understands the obstacles. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like I know whether a story's good or not usually, but like, I like it when somebody, whether it's you or Seth or KVV or Ben Montgomery or whoever knows, uh, like, like the Menzel thing Seth was talking about, like understands sort of the hurdles and shit sandwiches to be eaten. You know, I mean, like, like, like the greatest compliment in the world is when someone says that was a professional magazine story. Do you know what I mean? Like that was a professional magazine writer going to do a thing. That's my favorite thing in the world. Like when Seth or somebody says that. It's, it's also, you, you put your finger on it for me. It's the degree of difficulty. Uh, you know, when, when there's something that's really tough and your friends who are sort of with you in the foxhole as you're doing it know how hard it is and you somehow pull it off. Um, that's how I measure stories often is really on the degree of difficulty, just how hard that get was, how hard that perception was. This thing I'm doing right now is a yeah. nightmare yeah. Like, to keep straight. Like, that's why I love the Tiger Woods story. Yeah, the Tiger Woods story, that piece for me, he doesn't talk to you and to still be able to crack that was fascinating. Yeah, you rented a boat next to him. Yeah, talk about how you were able to get that. No, really, right? Because it's 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 an amazing, legendary sort of reporting story of how you were how you were able to get that tiger story. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of funny little moments. I mean, one is you know, you know, there are sort of whispers about the Navy SEAL stuff, but I mean, how do you crack that world? So I went through every book and newspaper story I could find that mentioned SEALs anywhere, including going through the acknowledgments of books and seeing all the names of people they thanked, and then a went on the internet and on Nexus and got as many email addresses as I could. And there was one photograph that existed of Tiger getting a official sort of VIP tour of a Navy base and meeting some SEALs. And so I took this photo and I emailed it to every single one of them and said, do you know anyone in this picture? And then I got an email back from one of the guys and was like, the third guy from the left is me. And that's how that happened. And I remember, you know, visiting you, you're, you guys remember um, Homeland? You know the first oh, yeah. season of Homeland. Sonia made me take this down because she said like it's freaking her out. Yeah, you, you know we're, we're, we're I'm forgetting her name, the main character. You know she has that entire Claire wall Davis. where she's trying to to piece together this terrorist network. And I mean, you had an entire wall of photographs of that was Seals. a similar type of yeah illustration of that little slice of Tiger's life when he you know allowed himself to imagine this alternative. I made a spreadsheet where I tried to account for every single day of his life in the 10 years since his father died. Uh, I, uh, but the boat thing was funny because I needed to be in this marina where he keeps his boat. So I rented a boat and I rented a slip and uh, I parked the boat there. Uh, But the beauty of it is that the ESPN expense people couldn't, this is true, couldn't figure out initially whether that should be lodging or entertainment. Well, it's both technically, or neither, or neither. Yeah, um, yeah. That's 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 having some incredible resources behind your reporting. Dude, ESPN's the best. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, for real. I mean, uh, uh, there's no place in the world that you know if you if you screw a story up, it is your fault. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, there's no one to blame. There are no excuses. Yeah, we are f- so fortunate. That's actually one of the I final areas I wanted to, yeah. to touch on. Yeah, just how lucky we are. 
I mean, we are given uh, time and resources, um, not an endless supply of both, but sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? just feels that way. It feels like, you know, um, you're limited only by how hard you're going to work or your your talent. You're given enough to do the job. Yeah. They give you everything you need. And, it's, and in this day and age with the cutbacks and layoffs and everything else, we're very, very fortunate. Not going to win. It's not going to last forever. So we got to just enjoy it while we can and keep working as hard as we can for sure. Um, I spoke to a class yesterday, guys, at the University of Virginia. I know you guys do this all the time. It was via Skype really smart students. They ask great questions. Uh, one young woman asked me, what do you want to be remembered for in your career? <laughs> I'm thinking like, shit, am I retiring tomorrow? Yeah, this already feels like my funeral. Like, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we're going there, man. Yeah, you're not getting me to say I'm just that. telling you. It, it, no, but it took a while to think about it. And I'm thinking, okay, is it a story I've done or maybe one I haven't done yet? You know, maybe the book Seth and it I are doing. It better be one I haven't done yet or um, this is all I just need to kill myself. Right. So finally, I said, I just want to be remembered for being a dogged reporter who found out a few things that powerful people didn't want anybody to know. I mean, really, that's that's what I said. I just want to walk down the street and have people point at me and say, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. <laughs> it's a better answer. No, I don't. No, I, I How about you, Seth? What do you want to be? What do you, I mean, really? I mean, you guys are a lot. You're 12 years younger. I'm not answering this. We're not going there, man. No, you're not. There's no shot. But can you be. imagine being asked that? But like, you're already known for that. So that's good. Yeah, Tom. I you're guess known, so. You're known for a, bu- a whole big pile of Pulitzers. So you're going to really, this book's going to need to sell a shitload of copies <laughs> to get in the first sentence of your obit. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for doing this. I feel like we should have done it like with, you know, some pappy with some bourbon. That would have been more fun. That's the last thing in the world I need is three drinks on and being recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, guys, for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. All right. And uh, and for our listeners, this has been Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham, two of the best writers in America. And I'm Don Van Natta. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Long Read. We'll see you again next time.